you know, there's a quote in the film, I think right at the beginning, and I, I should know it. Generally, the quote is along the lines of, you know, one of the, the most important things and, and hopeful things you can do is plant a tree under whose shade you won't sit because they take so long to grow. And, you know, there's everybody in, in my team and, and we get lots of help from tree planters who we hire to help us and other parks folks who come and give us a hand. And it's everybody's favorite day of the year to plant. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Christoph, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's episode, funnily enough, kind of a continuation from the last episode, actually. That was not intentional, by the way, but it uh, worked out pretty good. So this episode, we're talking about white bark pine. The last episode, we talked about white pine, eastern white pine, the history of all that kind of stuff. And this time we're talking about a species at risk that is in Western North America. And we're talking about it in the context of Canadian parks. But the the ecology is the same across everywhere. If you're in the United States, the ecology is the same. The relationship is the same. So this is applicable anywhere. But uh, I brought on uh, two people, Brenda Shepard, who is an ecologist team leader for the monitoring program at Jasper National Parks for Parks Canada. And also... Emily Rivera, and she is a communications officer for Parks Canada, also in Jasper. And I brought them in to talk about this species, white bark pine. And it's a crazy species. Like it's just, it's a five needle pine. It's got all kinds of weird mutualisms and relationships to birds and with grizzly bears and with the snowpack. And it's got these interesting things going on. It's a keystone species and we're losing it. And I wanted to learn why. Want to learn what's going on with this species and how do we get it back? Just like last episode, we talked a bunch about white pine blister rust, which is obviously a huge problem for this species, just like it is eastern white pine. It's funny, it's it's kind of timely that this is coming out on this podcast right now, uh, talking about funguses and pathogens and that kind of thing. It's got a bit of a, I couldn't help but when I was listening and editing this podcast, I couldn't help but get a little bit of a Last of Us vibe. You know that TV show that's out right now on HBO, The Last of Us? Bit of a spoiler. It's all about fungus zombies. <laughs> it's not exactly the same, but I, I just couldn't help but make the connection between a fungus running rampant and murdering an entire species and that show. So, <laughs> But uh, it was an incredible podcast. I learned so much about this tree and the ecology of it, the history of it, and the efforts that's going in. We're talking about what really set this all off was this video. And I'm going to link this video in the show notes. The video is called Planting the Future, Saving White Bark and Limber Pine. You can find it in the show notes. It's an incredible video and it really just inspired me to learn more about this species and what's going on and to try and help tell this story. Basically, there are seven national mountain parks in Western Canada that have decided to do something about this species that's going to go extinct. And they've teamed up. They've got a monitoring program and a planting program to try and recover the species. The enthusiasm in the video is really what brought me to this story. And yeah, I just loved having this conversation. Uh, you're going to learn a bunch. I was really excited. Yeah. Sponsors for this episode. Uh, two sponsors only for 2023. 
Wes Fraser is the number one. Without them, this would not be possible. Uh, yeah, they allow me to do this the way I want and how I want. And it's just the perfect situation. Thank you, Wes Fraser. And Greenlink Forestry. Without Greenlink, again, this would not be possible. Uh, yeah, been with me since the beginning. Thanks, Greenlink. And yeah, let's do this. Let's talk about another five needle pine, talking about birds and talking about pine needles and fungus that are killing things and beautiful mountain, you know, tops with rocks and grizzly bears and everything cool that you want to hear in a in a cool story about the forest, right? <laughs> it was awesome. So here we go. Yeah, first of all, thanks to both of you for coming on. Uh, this is a conversation that I'm excited to have. Uh, I've only recently, like I was mentioning before the recording started here, um, in the last few years, really only become aware of, in a more real sense, of whitebark pine and limber pine and the existence of this species in Alberta and BC and kind of the status of as a result of my work as an inventory forester. And uh, so this is when – when I came across the video – the the short six minute video I believe it's called uh, planting the future saving white bark and limber pine that's right that's right yeah planting uh, the future yeah great video by the way I thought it did such a good job of of summarizing this so anybody listening if you want to know where we're going that's a good place to start it's six minutes and it's just it just puts it all together very very well I was very impressed and I just had to reach out because I just want to know more I want to learn more it's such a fascinating both these species are so fascinating. Yeah, just such a cool idea. So uh, first, uh, I want to start by just getting to know the both of you just a little bit. So uh, Emily, why don't we start with you? Just tell us yeah, who you are a little bit and how you got into this space. But what I really want to know is why this type of work? You know, Why is this the type of work that you've decided to dedicate your life to? Why is it important to you? Um, well, <laughs> to be honest, the more I learn about white bark pine, the more I um, realize how amazing of a tree it is, and I'm I'm starting to see it as like as the king of trees. Like <laughs> it's a pretty impressive tree. What's the most interesting part about my job is the people I work with because um, they're so passionate about what they do. So I'm in a communications officer, and I work with Brenda's team, and I try my best to describe or to tell a story about what these um, passionate scientists are doing to try to restore or recover whitebark pine. And um, they're just a bunch of amazing, passionate people, like I said, and I find that very fulfilling and, and rewarding to work towards the recovery of a species like this one. Um, and yeah, and hopefully in the next hour, people are going to get to know it a little bit better and appreciate it like um, like I've learned too and as uh, Brenda has known for a long, long time now. Yeah, myself included, actually. I think I'm excited for that as well to gain a new appreciation for it. I think I just saw it up until now, just saw it as a species at risk. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited well, to dive in. That's what we're trying to change. We're trying to, we're trying to hopefully get um, white bark pine a bit more um, out of the uh, mountains and into people's uh, head a bit more, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, and Brenda, so uh, how about you? You've been leading this team, uh, this you know, trying to plant the white bark pine and limber pine and try and restore the species. Um, tell me a little bit. Before we get into all that, uh, how you got into, you know, biology and, and, and why have you decided to spend your time on, on these two species? 
Well, I'm the, I'm the um, I'm an ecologist uh, for Jasper, and I lead a team of field biologists, and we work on ecological monitoring and species at risk recovery. And so that's how actually I got into white bark pine for both reasons because back in 2003, I worked with other Parks Canada biologists um, across the mountain parks uh, to install long-term monitoring plots. So I've been working with this species for 20 years. That's awesome. And so I've seen a lot of changes. And what's what's really fun for me is that um, white bark pine occurs through the mountain parks. And so I work with a great team of people from across the national parks and provincial areas too, because, um, you know, these are all connected populations. Uh, so it really, you know, it takes a community of people um, to work on recovery. So, um, mm. so that's how I, I came to white bark. Um, but my background's actually working on birds, um, ah. which, you know, there's a strong bird connection um, yeah. for these species. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's how, that's how, uh, uh, white bark came into my life. Right. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. No, that's, that's very, very cool. Yeah. The bird connection is something we'll get into for sure. That's <laughs> yeah. something that's, I'm excited to talk about that one. Uh, so I, I think before we get really into anything, uh, I think someone should explain, put a picture in people's mind's eye of what this species is, where it's found, you know, um, what it looks like. If someone was to walk past one, what could they experience? Brenda, do you want to hmm. take that? Um, well, first, for the most part, you would need to be near, for white bark pine, you would need to be near tree line. For the most part, there's lots of exceptions, but you need to at least be in the upper subalpine, um, in the mountains of Western North America. Um, so it's got a fairly wide range and maybe I'll sort of limit the conversation to Canada, um, uh, because it does sure. occur in the U.S. Um, but in Canada, you would need to be, uh, in Waterton to Wilmore, um, in the east and way out to the coast mountains. Um, and I think as far north, and I might be wrong about this, but it, around Smithers and Kakwa in the north. So. That's where you'd need to be. You need to be in the mountains. You need to be up at the upper subalpine. And then you will um, hopefully find yourself in a white bark pine stand. Um, and there's lots of stands that uh, that have um, trails. Some have roads. Um, and how will you know you're at a white bark? Though it's called white bark, the bark is not always white. Uh, it can be a little bit silvery. It can be thin. It can be thicker. Um, and, um, you know, they're beautiful trees, especially when they're giant. Um, and they have a fabulous canopy that is, they have multiple leaders. So it looks from a distance a little bit like broccoli, broccoli tops. Um, That's a good way. <laughs> and um, so that's, I guess, a little bit about how you know you're in white bark. And then um, the other reason is the sound uh, because sound. often you'll hear the beautiful call of the Clark's Nutcracker, which I, I say kind of uh, um, joking because they don't have a beautiful call, <laughs> but they, they, they are very vocal. So it's both, both the look and the sound. What about you, Emily? 
I think it's kind of beautiful, though. I was like thinking about it. I'm like, I know what you mean because it's kind of high pitched, but I think it's kind of beautiful when you know, especially the relationship between the tree and the bird. And I was thinking about how can I describe white bark pine? And the first word that came to mind is it's gnarly. It looks gnarly. gnarly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it doesn't have like, it doesn't grow straight. It grows pretty much whatever, whatever way, like, to be honest, like there's, they're, they're kind of like, yeah, they're not a straight tree. They're, they can look very different from one tree to another, but I really like Brenda's description, broccoli top. That's pretty yeah. much how I would describe it now. And also, um, because of the term broccoli, it also makes you think that they're green. And when they are very big and, and, and they are very green, they're just so beautiful. Um, and another thing that I was going to mention about white bark pine, and um, if you are in a white bark pine stand, another tail sign, telltale sign, um, is the, um, their needles. So white bark pine and limber pine, they grow in fascicle of five um, so needles. Five needle. right. yeah, yeah, exactly. As opposed to like lodgepole pine, I think it's two. Yep. So that's a, that's a very, very special trait that limber pine and, and white bark pine share. Yeah. So that's another way to describe, to identify the tree or know that you have a white bark pine. Cause sometimes it can be hard to identify. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think the first, the first tree that I came across that I thought was a white bark pine, and I think it's actually in my LinkedIn profile picture. Uh, I was like, oh, cool. My first white bark pine, it was 100% a limber pine, <laughs> but close enough, right? I was like, I got the five fascicle, the five needle pine. Um, the one that what finally gave it away, I found some cones and I was like, ah, oh, darn it. But it, <laughs> but I thought it was a white bark pine for quite some time and it was hard to differentiate between the two, but also the, the location should have given it away. It wasn't quite in the subalpine. It was kind of on those, those, you know, uh, desiccated kind of erosion slopes closer to the valley bottom so mm. uh but yeah it was very 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 cool i remember the first actual white bark pine stand i came to um you were talking about the multiple multiple leaders meaning the multiple main uh main stem coming off real growing mm-hmm. and uh i was walking through a stand and i saw these pine shoots coming at an angle out of the ground almost like a like a shrub wood or something right like coming probably i don't know like a 30 degree angle out of the ground. And I was like, what the hell? I've never seen Lodgepole do that. That's so strange. Um, and then I saw it everywhere. And I was like, all of these that I assumed were shrubs were actually pine coming out of the ground, just baby pine. And then I re- started looking up and started realizing, oh, this is white bark pine. This yeah. is totally different than all the other pines that I'm used to, which they're, you know, they really just, they, they're, it's a race for the sun, right? And yeah. I'm sure white bark pine does that too. But just the the yeah the scrubby shrubby nature of them, or of I should say probably more of the as a result of the place that they live, I would assume. But uh, yeah, it was it, it really was almost alien to to see for the first time for me, and it was it was super super cool. And I definitely took an hour off of work and just kind of explored the area. So got paid for that. That was nice. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's a fascinating species and I uh, I was so happy to find it in Alberta. Um and yeah, like I said that was only a few years ago that I came into that realization. So so you're in a white bark pine forest. It's this, you know, subalpine rocky kind of area. Uh you got these trees that could be you know, as as much as 400 years old or whatever. Um and I was taken aback on the video where you talked about the symbiotic relationship between the nutcracker, the Clark's nutcracker, and this tree. Uh, 
Do you want to explain what's going on there? Sure. So coevolution is is something we see in um across the world with species. Um it's not it's not really common when you have such a strong mutualism, it's called, when one species depends on another for its survival. But white bark pine has has a species that it needs uh, for survival, and that's and that's the Clark's nutcracker, which is it's corvid, which means that it belongs in the same family as as uh, ravens and crows. The white bark pine needs the Clark's nutcracker. The Clark's nutcracker benefits from the white bark pine, um, and certainly it does better when white bark pine is healthy. But mm. it has other uh, tree species that it also feeds on. But without the Clark's nutcracker, you wouldn't have the white bark pine because the cones are they're closed. And so, you know, some tree species, the seeds are distributed by the wind or they open up and drop. But for whitebark pine, the cones need to be opened. And so the Clark's nutcracker does that work for, um, for whitebark pine. It'll often you see them like they're, they're perched right up in the, in the, um, treetop and they're peeling back the, the scales on the cones. Okay. And what is like fascinating to me is that the nutcracker has evolved this pouch under its tongue and it can take the seeds and put the seeds in the pouch under its tongue. And I'm trying to recall, but I think it's around 50 seeds and I, you know, Holy roughly 90. fit under its 90? tongue. Yeah. 50, 50 or so. And I'm, you know, it might be more anyway. I, I don't more. have the number off the, is it? Okay. 50 it's to more. 90. Okay. Yeah. 90. Yeah. Okay. Oh good. Thanks. Um, <laughs> That's anyway, wild. So it does, it puts them under in this little pouch and then it flies around and it does what other, um, corvids do, which is they, they cache their food for later. So it flies to some other location, often relatively close to the tree, but sometimes further. And it will cache a number of seeds in a little under the ground, under the soil, um, for later to eat, to come back and eat later. And so they have an incredible memory because they'll cache all of these seeds in little groupings, often of like roughly five species or five seeds or so. And then it will remember and fly back and eat them, you know, sometimes months later, mm. um, and maybe digging under the snow to find their little cache. And to us, it doesn't look like any place you'd ever remember. Um, but the birds <laughs> yeah. remember, but yeah. they don't remember where all of them are, mm. or some may die or for anyway, for whatever reason, mm. some of them are not eaten. And it's only those seeds that become white bark pine trees. Um, and so that's, that's why you often see them like when Emily was mentioning the gnarly look of the white barks, they're, they're growing in little groupings. So you'll often see white bark pine is usually, um, a multi, multi stemmed coming out of the ground. Um, oh. and sometimes they even look attached at their bases because the seeds are all in a little tiny group when mm. they germinate and then you see the little seedlings. And so often that's a really cool way to, s you can totally picture this bird caching the seeds when you see these seedlings, um, coming out of the ground in little groups of five. Um, so you know, aha, a bird that goes there. That makes sense. I was wondering, I was like, why is this thing multi-leader? But it's not actually multi-leader. It's just that there's so many seeds close together. Yeah, well, no, it is multi-leader as well. So you'll have, oh, it'll okay. be multi, multi, um, 
uh, multiple stems coming mm-hmm. out of the ground and then multiple leaders at the top. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, and hence the broccoli shape at the top. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you know can almost see as well where the seeds kind of roll down sometimes because you have whitebark pine growing out of rocks. It feels like sometimes, like you can stumble oh. upon a whitebark pine that. It feels like it's growing into rock, and you're like, "How can it do that?" But it does. It's it's a very harsh tree. It's a very Isn't that incredible? Tree. Like just just having like little bits of knowledge like that about the forest that you're walking through, it just makes the experience so much richer, doesn't it? Like knowing, like, okay, why is this like this? Well, it's because of the Clark's Nutcracker. Why did mm-hmm. it? Yeah, why is it in this little rock? Oh, because it probably rolled down the hill, or maybe a Nutcracker dropped it, or whatever. And like, it just it really enriches the experience and like allows you to fully appreciate it. I think, right? It's just it's incredible. Oh, you are so right. I totally appreciate. I totally agree with you. I feel like walking in a forest and knowing these things it makes your experience mm-hmm. so much more rich. You know, it's. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So th- this concept of the like the Nutcracker and the you called it um, mutualism. Yeah, it's not mutualism. mutualism. They they evolve so, together. So it's a, a symbiotic relationship where they evolve together. And so, how common is that in nature? Because I feel like I don't you don't hear about that very often. Where it's completely, it's I mean, obviously, it sounds like the white bark pine benefits a little more than the Nutcracker does. Like the Nutcracker has other options where the white bark pine maybe not. So I'm curious, like how how common is this, and and how 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 special is this? Is my what I'm trying to get to. I mean, there if you Google it, there's some super interesting mutualisms in nature around the world, and and uh, so you know it, that's such a fun topic to explore. What's interesting about this mutualism? They're interesting because, as I said, there the Nutcracker isn't. As dependent on the white bark as the white bark is on the nutcracker. But what is really cool is that the white bark pine produces these really high fat seeds. And so the nutcracker definitely prefers the white bark pine seeds because they're so rich and they're an excellent food source. And so when there's what we call a mast year, when there are a lot of cones produced because uh, white bark pine does not produce cones every year, it masts. Um, so like it, I'm sure there's other trees that do the same. Um, many conifers but, do. Yeah. 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 And so in mast years, um, what they find is nutcrackers do much better. They have better, better, uh, productivity. They, they produce more young. They have better survival. So definitely the white bark pine is a huge benefit to nutcrackers. Also, you know, not only is there this, this amazing co-evolution of two species, but the white bark pine, um, is also what's called a keystone species, mm-hmm. where it has a much bigger effect on the ecosystem than we would think, um, from its abundance. Right. And so the white bark pine is also important for many other species of birds mm-hmm. and small mammals, grizzly bears. Um, and, you know, black bears will eat them. And so often, you know, when you asked about how do you know you're in a white bark pine stand, these trees will, uh, you can often see the, um, claw marks of bears, um, that climb the trees to, to get the cones. But the bears are also, you know, really sneaky and they also get cones out of the squirrel middens. So squirrels, oh. um, <laughs> also feed on the cones, bring the cones right. back to their middens. And then the grizzly bear comes in and, um, and steals the cones from yeah. the squirrels. 
of course. Classic grizzly bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's such a fascinating, cause I feel like for, well, for me, most of my, most of my experience with, with pine trees, right, is, is jack pine and, and lodgepole pine, which are fire dependent species, right? So they, they largely, reproduce through the event of fire, uh, spreading the cones, opening the cones and allowing the seeds to drop to the ground. Mm-hmm. What is, what is difference? What is the different about white bark pine? Why, why is the nutcracker the, you said it co-evolved, but I'm curious as to, is fire also a way that this species can, can, uh, you know, can spread and reproduce or is it, or is it, is it different somehow? Fire is really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Good. So I'm glad I asked only, that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so the only way that white bark pine can reproduce is through the nutcracker. Fire does not, it, unlike lodgepole pine, it doesn't open up the cones. It oh. would, but fire plays an important role for white bark pine. Okay. And in some areas, more than others, but with the long history of fire suppression, um, and you've probably covered this in, in previous podcasts, but the long history sure. of fire suppression in Canada means that we have older forests for whitebark pine. Importantly, there aren't open areas and a oh, lot of whitebark pine stands are now being outcompeted by subalpine fir. Um, so whitebark really benefits. It, it's, it's what we call also a pioneering species and it will come in and colonize an area after fire and it can survive where other trees cannot. Um, so fire plays an important role in reducing competition with other species. Fire can also be, you know, it's something we need to be really thoughtful about too, um, because high intensity fires that we're increasingly seeing more of with climate change, uh, they can also burn white bark pine. <laughs> so white bark pine stands. So overall, there is a huge benefit of fire, uh, for white bark pine. And, you know, it'll be, and we have to be thoughtful and think about this for recovery actions. Um, so that we can help keep open habitat where white bark pine can expand into. And so we use tools like prescribed fire to do that. Gotcha. No, that makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. So it does rely on open spaces. Um, yeah, it's a, like you said, it takes over where, where things are, the trees have been decimated and it needs that open sunlight to grow properly. So, Gotcha. So one more question about fire and then we'll move on. <laughs> but, uh, so does fire just, cause, um, with like, say, lodgepole pine, for example, right? And you know this, but I'll just go through it. Uh, they have resinous cones and the fire heats up the resin enough that the cones open up and the seeds fall out to the ground. And the timing is such that it tends to happen. The seeds fall after the fire has gone through sort of thing. Um, are, why doesn't that happen with white bark pine? Do the, is it just, is it a different type of cone? It's not, is it, I'm assuming it's still resinous, but is it like somehow more vulnerable to fire? It burns more easily. It's not as, as hardy or what? The trees have, you know, they, they don't have any special ability to withstand low intensity fires like a Douglas fir would, for example. Uh, okay. Um, it has, has thin bark. And the cones don't require fire to open them. Mm. Um, and you know, it's a good question. I just, I don't know 
what would happen in a low intensity fire if cones were still intact. Right. I imagine if they weren't scorched too badly that they would grow, but they don't require fire to open them like gotcha. a lodgepole pine forest. Gotcha. Would. I guess nutcrackers get to it first. <laughs> there might not have been as many fires up high as well, as well. They just didn't evolve that way. Right. That was the other thought I had was yeah. that, yeah, in, like in the central mixed wood, you have fires, you know, every 60 to 80 years kind of thing, or like probably more back in the day before we mm-hmm. introduced fire suppression, right? Uh, exactly. Whereas, yeah, up in the subalpine, maybe it was only every 300 years. So it just wasn't exactly, a force. Yeah. Right. And um, I don't know if we have talked about, I don't think we've talked about it, but um, the nutcracker has like a little bit of a specialized beak, eh, to be open, oh. to be able to open these cones that are completely okay. closed. And they're quite hard. I don't know if you've ever touched one or seen one, but they're quite hard. I found them to be like, you know, lodgepole pine, they're kind of like a little bit softer, but the white bark pine cones are very hard to me anyways. Mm. And and the um, Clark's Nutcracker has also evolved on top of his specialized pouch under his tongue. It has like a little bit of a curved beak and oh. it's specialized to open these cones. Like he, it's the only space species I think that has that little kind of a beak to be able to open it. So, and and then the shape of the cone is kind of like a little bit of an egg shape. And right. It has like a little bit of a purple tint to it. And so the white bark, the Clark's Knot Cracker has the ability to like specific, I think it goes from the top and, and finds like a little bit of an opening. And with its beak, it's able to open it. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. It's just, a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating you know, mutualistic relationship where I just, I, it's, it's, it also brings to mind that it seems like a super vulnerable relationship, like a super fragile relationip. Yes. <laughs> That's, right? like, I think why it's a little bit that why it needs a little bit of help. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, you know, there, there's been some really interesting research, um, in, in the States about the relationship with, with nutcrackers. And what, one of the key questions was, um, the distance that Clark's nutcrackers travel. Um, so what is their home range size? And that's important when we think about like recovering this species and how, when we think about connectivity for, for white bark and limber pine, that the nutcracker is really an important really important in helping us understand connectivity. So if, if they will fly, you know, 12 kilometers, 25 kilometers, we need to think about, well, if, if we're trying to restore white bark pine across the range, we need to think about the distances that Clark's nutcrackers connect these stands. Uh, so yes. in the States, they fitted nutcrackers with little satellite transmitters. And, uh, we're really opening up our understanding of how these birds travel and how far they are able to move uh, cones or move the seeds. And how far is that, roughly? I'm, and I'm trying to recall, but I think it's about as much as 28 kilometers is their home range size. Okay. Um, but certainly what they find is that trees closer together are more highly related. So nutcrackers will cache often close to the the tree where they got they harvested their seeds. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like if they have 
what, 50 or 90 seeds in their little pouch and they're only doing groups of five they can they can probably do they can probably cover a lot of ground and if they leave a couple in there forget about them maybe they end up 28 kilometers away <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah they have so many caches it's very yeah. impressive that they can come back and find any well I, I suppose if they do it by groups of five they would have enough that they eventually find some but it's gotcha. pretty impressive how they can come back and find these caches so I have a question about the the nutcracker then actually. So what is the status of the nutcracker itself? Um you know what I mean if the if the trees require this nutcracker what is the status of them are they do they have other pressures on them other you know aspects that would make you worry about it or is it mainly if you could take care of the white pine the nutcracker kind of comes along with it. Yes. Yeah, that okay. seems to be the understanding they're not their their vulnerability is completely tied to the health um of white bark and limber pine. Gotcha. Um, yeah, they don't have other vulnerabilities, um, say for a lot of other bird species that migrate and have a lot of other threats. Um, they don't have mm. their, their, their condition is really tied to the health of, of the trees. Gotcha. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's, it's yeah crazy. What a crazy relationship. And you, uh, uh, Brenda, I have another question for you regarding the, you, you, you said they're a keystone species. Mm-hmm. Um, so meaning that it's responsible for a lot of what's going on in the rest of the rest of the landscape. Um, can we, can we go into that a little bit more? You mentioned that there's a, there's a relationship with bears and with other birds and with squirrels and that kind of thing. Explain, mm-hmm. maybe you want to go into what a keystone species means. Um, and I guess a, a good way I always find, and feel free to do something different if you don't like this example, <laughs> but a good way I always find is to explain what might happen if the keystone species no longer existed. It's a good way. I feel like it's, yeah. a, I feel like it's a good way to put it into people's minds, yeah. put the perspective there. So, um, so yeah, maybe explain what it is and then you can answer that question if you don't mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, truly, um, what we would expect is with the loss of whitebark pine, um, that the, Subalpine ecosystem would be would be different. It would be quite changed. Uh, we think of white bark and limber pine as communities because so many different species do rely on them. Mm-hmm. So you know we would expect a change in the community of species that use the subalpine and tree line areas in in um, the mountains of Western Canada. You know, like other uh, keystones, you begin to see other you know, more drastic changes in, in the ecosystem um, when you lose that species and you lose the community that's tied to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. it's kind of the, yeah, it's the foundation of the, of that community. And without it, you start, mm-hmm. well, you lose the nutcracker obviously and other things. Yeah. I, I was trying to find a way to describe what a key t- keystone species is for, um, to this. Yeah. The best way to describe it. And I, I'm not sure if it's going to, mean something to you but the way i see it it's like it's a species that gives back more to the ecosystem than it takes hey, in a way i right? like that so, that's good yeah so the white bark pine like will give back to grizzlies to so many animals to the vegetation to the to the snow uh, pack to the um water flow like so many things but really just needs like a, a piece of a little piece of rock and uh, a little bit of soil and it grows right sun and it's yeah. happy so it, yeah. that's how i kind of try to describe it because a lot of people ask what are what is a keystone species what does that mean and i yeah. find it hard to really to really explain what it means so this is kind of like what i i think is the best way it's like it gives back to the ecosystem more than it takes 
More I than like that. Eats. I like that a lot because I, I oh, think good. I found myself being like, what's a keystone species? I'm like, it's a really important species. Exactly. <laughs> but why? <laughs> yeah. Not a very good explanation, right? <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I like that. That makes sense. So per, it gives back more than it requires. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, That's great. Like that. Good call. <laughs> nice. I suppose we should talk about the other big elephant in the room around white bark pine and why it is endangered and what's going on. Uh, who wants to introduce it? Well, blister rust is a disease that uh, came in on, I understand, um, to the port of Vancouver in around 1900. Oh, oh wow. And yeah, yeah, um, probably a ship on a shipment of, of logs from Europe. Actually, um, I have a, I have a side note. Can I intervene mm, for a second? Yeah, I just, I just happened to have the last podcast that will be coming out just before this one. Uh, we had this conversation. We were talking about Eastern white pine and its responsibility for, uh, basically building America, essentially, <laughs> which was an interesting conversation. And we answered this question about where the blister rust came from. What it actually was, was, uh, Eastern white pine, obviously it had been cut until, basically non-existent anymore right to the to the extent that it was in the past and the foresters here back in the 1900s were like okay we need to bring this back how do we go about doing that at the time we didn't have nurseries so they brought cones back to england and they, they had nurseries there they grew these trees and there was other five needle pines that apparently had the blister rust and in the nurseries the seedlings actually picked up the blister rust. They were brought back here as an intention to plant them on the landscape and bring back the eastern white bar or eastern white pine. And as a result, white pine blister rust is now rampant in North America. So it came from a place of, man, we screwed up big time. Let's <laughs> fix this. And then we screwed up big time again. <laughs> With our lack of no understanding of pathology, right? So hmm. it was a, it's a fascinating, it's a, it's a weird, we're humans, we're, we're kind of doubling down on our faults when we're trying to fix the problem. <laughs> oh, it is history repeats itself. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt, <laughs> Brenda, but I felt I, I, just because I just released that episode or it's just sure. coming out here in January, yeah. I felt the need cool. to fill that in. Anyways, so now continuing. Oh, <laughs> cool. And so over over the last hundred years, it has moved to every part of of Whitebark Pine Range. Um, I don't believe that there are. I certainly I've been into in Whitebark Pine stands uh, from Waterton to the Wilmar, and I've not been in a stand that doesn't have blister rust. Certainly, it's the infection rates are much higher closer to the U.S. border, and okay. they decline. As you move further north, but there's white, but, but there's blister rust everywhere. Um, gotcha. and so because white bark pine did not evolve with blister rust, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have any, it doesn't have much resistance to the disease. Now in Europe, the stone pines evolved with blister rust and they don't, they're not impacted. Um, by rust, they have genetic resistance to blister rust. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the trees here do not. And so the blister rust spores enter the needles and then move down into the branches. And then the infection will spread to the main stem. And, uh, often what happens is the, it produces what we call a canker. Right. And so that's where you often see them on the branches, the cankers, and it, 
there, there's sort of different characteristics that you look for, but it's thick and bark, it's swollen, um, it's oozing sap um, as the tree tries to fight off the infection. And then what happens is they, the small mammals come in and they will feed on the sap and often oh. girdle the branch. And often that's what kills the branch first. And then when it moves down into the main stem, same thing happens again. Small mammals come in, they eat around the, uh, the stem, and that will often be the, 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 the primary cause oh. or, or the, the, the ultimate cause of death, um, for the tree. So interesting. I didn't what know. What happens too is in a really large tree, uh, you'll find over time that they'll, it'll die in little patches. It might take decades for a tree to die as you start losing branches. And often when you lose branches, you lose cone production. Right. Uh, so there's, you know, you're seeing the impact over time, but it may take some time for it to move to the main stem and kill the tree. And so that's it, really blister rust is the primary threat to, to white bark pine and, and limber pine. Um, there are other, uh, there are other, um, threats to the species too, though. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a fascinating problem <laughs> the blister us because it's just it, it's it's such a problem and it's just everywhere and i know there's been attempts to eradicate it and um in the last like, like i said in the last podcast i had they talked about the uh blister rust has a relationship with um the ribes species and that's how it but when it's in between pines, that's where it is. And they've tried to yep. like rip out all of the ribes species. So the gooseberries and everything else nearby in hopes that that would help. And it's never, has that been attempted here as well? No, no. I, you know, the, that work was done quite a number of decades ago yeah, and it was yeah. found to not be effective. Um, right. Sometimes uh, people would, they, they tried pruning off the infected branches, but what happened was the tree would just be exposed again to spores uh, in the next year. And if it doesn't have the resistance, it would just get reinfected. So again, uh, generally found that that's not worth, um, that, that effort is not worth worth it for restoring yeah. um, the tree. And, and there are other approaches that I'm sure we'll get to that yeah. are more effective. <laughs> yeah. So we've, found, we've learned and we've found better ways. Right. Yeah. yeah. So basically, blister rust is here. It's here to stay. How do we deal with that, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. Um, so uh, in the video, you talked a bit about like ghost forests. And mm -hmm. I was interested to hear that because my understanding was that although blister rust is – it's everywhere and it does slowly kill the tree, I didn't think it would – you know, murder an entire stand of of white bark, but apparently that's been happening. So, I, yeah, I, I, the first my first exposure was the video showing this picture of this ghost forest, so just a bunch of white bark pine snags. Um, I didn't realize that was that that's how bad it was. That it was like, no, this is a real, real serious, immediate threat. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I, I think I want to explain a little bit. Um, yeah, like how how much of a problem this is, and that and that it's like how fast does it take out a whole stand? Yeah, and one of the areas where you see these ghost forests is is in Waterton, in the Waterton okay. area, and it's that area is we we often refer to it as the crown of the continent, um, uh. and it's a larger area that includes Glacier National Park in the U.S. and surrounding areas, and it happens to be and and it, 
that idea of the crown of the continent. It's, it's a concept that's being used to help with conservation of lots of species, um, across a larger landscape that's really, con- really connected. Um, okay. but it's also the area where, uh, white bark and limber pine are the hardest hit, um, in the range. And uh. so in, a place like Waterton, you will find areas where the infection rate is so high that it has killed all of the trees in a stand. Oof. So there is, and I, I'm sure we'll build on this, there is some resistance to uh, white pine blister rust. And it's through multiple mechanisms. It's not just like a single gene that makes that, that, that white bark pine will never get blister rust. It's right. a series of characteristics that that tree has that makes it able to withstand blister rust infection. But if infection is really, if, if, if it's, if the infection level is so high, it can often overcome even those traits that a tree will have. So yes, you'll find in places, especially in the southern part of the range in Canada, where all of the trees in the stand will have have died from blister rust. Wow. So that that northern boundary line of kind of where you talked about where the not a boundary, I guess I shouldn't say, but where the the prevalence of blister rust seems to start to thin out over time as it goes north. Is that just a result of um, it slowly migrating its way up and hasn't quite made it there? So like it's going to get really bad? Or is it a is it a climatic thing that's kind of resisting, you know, pushing some resistance against the blister rust? You know, it's that's a great question. And I we think that it just hasn't spread there. Gotcha. Um, and so that there may be worse. other factors. Th- mm. There may be other factors um, like relative humidity. So other other climatic factors that make it so that the blister rust doesn't grow as well. Uh. Um, so, you know, we're really still exploring some of these, some of these factors, um, but certainly there the major trend that we see is a declining infection level as you move north. Um, But there are areas out in the coast mountains and the Chilcotins where infection rates are also low. But what we think is that it's not because these trees in, as you move further north are more resistant to the rust. That's not what we have found so far. Um, There may be over time that we start to learn more and more about, about genetic variation in the tree, but that's, that doesn't seem to be the story. Okay. So, uh, I think now, so we've got the situation where we have this keystone species that is completely dependent on Clark's nutcracker to reproduce and as well as a little bit with fire to open up the, open up the canopy and allow space for the Clark's nutcracker to place the seeds. Uh, and then introduce the blister rust. Uh, so you already have this pretty vulnerable tree species, right? And then you introduce this blister rust, which is an outside, outside pathogen, which has started to really place a lot more pressure on this tree. Um, and we can't get rid of it. So. The conclusion that you have come to is, and in the, <laughs> is to start planting, right? Is that, is, is that right? Am I right in saying that? Yes, yes. The, okay. but wait, there's hope message. Yeah. There's, wait, there's hope. Okay. Yes. What's the hope? Yeah. Tell me um, about the hope. But before we get to hope, maybe sure. we should, uh, just talk about a couple more threats. Oh, sure. I, I didn't yeah. realize I was missing some. Okay. Let's talk about more threats. Let's go more. Yeah. Doom. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's go dark before we go light. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Put it all out there. <laughs> okay. Okay. What else, am I, what else am I missing? I didn't realize. Oh, you're, you're missing mountain pine beetle. 
Oh, um, right. Of course. I'm sure a topic you've discussed before, um, yeah. because it's such an important species for forestry in Canada. And so mountain pine beetle also attacks uh, white bark pine. And in fact, some people have found that they preferentially attack uh, white bark pine. Uh, and and mm. I, I don't have the data at my, at my fingertips to uh, go into that. But um, certainly, Jasper is a place where we know mountain pine beetle very well. And so when yeah. it, yeah, when it uh, came into Jasper around 2015, it marched through low elevation lodgepole pine, you know, we can go, you know, think back to the, the, our earlier discussion of fire suppression and how that created great conditions for mountain pine beetle to come in and then also bring in climate change, uh, warm winters that didn't kill mountain pine beetle because mountain pine beetle is native to this area, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, warm winters are not common. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had warm winters, good survival, overwinter survival of mountain pine beetle. It made its way and ate everything in the lower lower elevations. And over, I'm going to say, four to five years especially, it also made its way up into higher elevation forests gotcha. uh, where the whitebark pine is. Mountain pine beetle had a significant impact on whitebark pine in Jasper uh, because there's no defense to for, for um, mountain pine beetle. Um, so lots of large diameter, uh, because mountain pine beetle prefers larger diameter trees, uh, were, were killed by mountain pine beetle. And so you see not very different than when you see a tree that has blister rust, a tree with blister rust, you slow, you see little bits and pieces of Mm -hmm. dead in a, in a live tree. But when mountain pine beetle comes in, it's a completely uh, red and dead uh, tree that happens, you know, over, over the course of a, of a year or so. So really, you know, that generally covers the major threats, um, to, to white bark and limber with the, really the primary one being blister rust. Um, and then secondarily, at least in, in our region, mountain pine beetle. Gotcha. Fire suppression. Climate yeah. change. Um, as we've talked and climate change. Yeah. 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 The fire suppression one, fire suppression, climate change comes up every episode, right? Like it's yeah. the fact that we've, like the the pine beetle one is is a perfect example, right? Like, like you said, the pine beetles need uh, they need large diameter trees in order to survive the winters, and we've provided that through fire suppression. We just got this even age carpet of forests for <laughs> thousands of kilometers. It's just mm-hmm. perfect situation, and it's yeah, um, but yeah, that comes up constantly. So that totally makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. Okay. So now that we're thoroughly doomed. <laughs> There's hope. There's hope. Don't Is give there? up. Is there? Yeah. 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 Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think um, when, I, when I watched this video, when I first found the video, uh, I think I was really happy to see the excitement and enthusiasm, not only from you, Brenda, but from the other folks that were on screen there and just their enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. See what enthusiasm. I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it was just exciting. So it was, yeah. it was exciting to see what you guys were up to. And so, yeah, let's, 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 are you ready to talk about this now? Did I miss any more doom? We're good. Yes, I'm okay. ready, ready to go <laughs> to hope and action. Yeah. Hope and action. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this planting program, um, let's. How did this come about? And um, yeah, let's we'll, we'll, we'll just get into it. I'll let you take the lead on this one. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to start? 
Well, you know, we really um, owe a huge thanks to a lot of researchers in the in the U.S. Um, okay. who really got the ball rolling on, um, you know, their the the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation has includes a lot of folks who really paved the way for restoration for these species across North mm. America. And so, you know, we owe a huge debt of gratitude in Canada to the work that they started. And then, you know, in, in Canada, the work initially started in Waterton Lakes, which is no big surprise. Uh, it's where the problem is, is the greatest. Um, and so they did a lot of the initial work to help us on a path of recovery. So it really stems from our earlier um, chat about about resistance to uh, blister rust. Yeah. So what we find is that there are trees, individual trees that have um, the traits that make them able to resist uh, infection by blister rust or resist resist damage due to infection. Mm. Um, and I'm not a geneticist. Um, so I can't go into the, the detailed genetic background about, about what, how and why, uh, this happens. But we'll just say there's some talk- magic genetics that help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I can talk a lot about how this plays out in the field. Um, because that's what we do really. Our role in Parks Canada around white bark and limber is, is taking recovery action to help mm. the, these species recover and, and survive over, over the coming centuries, really. Yeah. And so what we do is an interesting story because it really demands a huge amount of hard work by people. Um, yeah. and that means you've got to go into stands of white bark pine and you, Start by doing this thing that we lovingly call the 100 tree survey. And so you visit 100 uh, large diameter uh, trees randomly in a stand and you assess them for infection due to blister rust. And you're really looking for those traits that I talked about uh, um, or the symptoms of blister rust infection. Uh, so you really develop a good eye for, for detecting infection. So you're looking generally for trees that you believe would have been well exposed to blister rust. They have large canopies. They've been around for, for, for many years. They would have been infected by blister rust and yet they have either no infection, no cankers, or they have relatively few compared with the stand. Sure. So you might be in such a highly infected place uh, like Waterton and find, well, this tree does have some cankers, but it has survived the cankers and it is relatively much healthier than the other trees in the stand. So these trees are the foundation of recovery. These trees that have, have some level of resistance. And, um, you know, the, the next steps are really about trying to help. We're really accelerating natural selection. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what we're doing is we are these trees that show some resistance. We, collect the seeds from those trees. And um, it's easier said than done. Um, <laughs> I mentioned this tree masts, so it doesn't produce cones every year. So really, you have to focus on years when there's a mast year where there are a lot of cones to collect. And um, these trees are tall. So it's not like you can just pick them from the ground. You've got to, you've got to climb them. And you don't get to climb them just once. You have to climb them twice. And that's because you have to uh, protect them against the nutcracker. So, uh, right, right. You need the we, seeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So once we find these trees, these important 
resistant, what we think are resistant trees based on their phenology or what they look like. We think they're resistant. We don't know they're resistant, but we think they are. We go in and in a spring. We know there's a good cone crop. We will climb the tree, use it with, first we get some good training so that we can do this safely. We use climbing ropes and harnesses. Um, and we've developed some great systems working with arborists and we have a our own training program yeah. uh, that, that the arborists have developed and, and they've trained us to safely climb these trees. We climb them with ropes and harnesses and we place these cages. That's these, these mesh, fine mesh cages that the nutcrackers can't break into. They can't get their beaks through them. So we go up to the branches up at the top of the tree and we put the cages over the cones, the cones in the spring. And I, when I say spring, really it's summer, I guess early summer. <laughs> We're usually in there in June, early July. Cause if you go too late, the cone, the seeds are gone. Um, right. they've been eaten. So we go in. The cones are not mature. We can't pick them then. We've got to wait. Um, mm-hmm. So we put the cages over them and we protect them while they mature over the summer. Gotcha. And, you know, for each tree, we try and and cage 30 cones or so at least. Um, and then we walk away and we come back in September when they're mature. We climb back up. We take off the cage, we pick the cones, put them in our little burlap bag while we're climbing around the top of the tree, descend, and then take these cones back to the office where we dry them out for about a month. Mm. Um, and then we open up the cones, extract the seeds, and each cone has like 50 to 80 or so seeds inside a cone. Um, so uh, all of these seeds then get sent for planting. And we work with different private nurseries um, who have developed some great expertise to successfully grow white bark pine seedlings. And then we plant those two-year-old, it takes two years, plant those two-year-old seedlings that we think are resistant back uh, into the park. Or um, And it's not just us doing this. Folks are doing it across all the national parks and provincial um Biologists and the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation of Canada. They're also doing great work. So great work in Alberta and BC um, uh, within the range to try and work at planting these resistant seedlings. Yeah. You know, I could tell, I could tell that you worked for parks for a while because you made sure to point out to OHS that like, Hey, we're being really safe when we climb the trees. <laughs> I appreciated that detailed explanation. And I also, I also, it's have- funny, you know, sometimes I felt like, <laughs> I felt like Tigger up there in the top of the tree <laughs> as it's swaying in the wind. And right. you're, you're pretty darn happy you've got that, uh, that harness and, uh, yeah. and, uh, anchor in place. Yeah. No kidding. Especially in the subalpine, right? Where you're not talking about falling flat either you're gonna yeah something else you know i I have a it's funny i have a talking about all this safety stuff and then collecting cones a funny story came to mind my father's also a a, a retired forester now and i can't remember why but he was out with a group of people and they had to collect lodge or would have been jack pine cones uh and out of a pine beetle killed stand for some reason they needed these cones i don't remember why and they're all sitting around this happened to be around hunting season and they're like well how are we going to get these cones they're trying to brainstorm this right they had ladders and they had pruners and they had everything and my dad being the cowboy that he is (laughs) goes to the truck and grabs the shotgun (laughs) 
so this is cowboy action he's shooting cones off the top of the tree so they fall and it's it's the it's the exact opposite of what you're doing <laughs> yes, and yes, I, I must say probably the way you did it is probably the more scientific more uh you know good way to get the cones off without creating you know <laughs> shotgun blasts in the trees and openings for blister rust to get in but yeah uh, anyways it was, it was a it was some cowboy forestry going on that i just yeah. came to mind when you're talking about that <laughs> i'd like to yeah. think that our techniques have evolved matt <laughs> yeah yeah i'd say so i'd say so yeah i would agree absolutely okay so you've done all this incredible work i'm assuming this takes a long time to do and this is a this is a program that you're you're hoping to do in perpetuity like this is not Let's do it a couple times and you're hoping to continue to do this kind of forever, I would, or, you know, for the foreseeable future, right? So this is something you're doing every year is going up and getting these. Yeah, certainly for decades. Um, there, there is, you know, there, there is long term planning, restoration planning um, mm-hmm. across the range in Canada, mm-hmm. um, that is happening so that we can plan ahead and think about the decades into the future where and how do we take these different actions across the range so that there is enough um, resistance across the range to support the recovery in the future? So hopefully there is, there is someday in the coming mm-hmm. decades when we mm-hmm. will have enough seedlings mm-hmm. um, that have resistance out there to support a population that can, that can survive on its own. So that's really the aim is that we create a, a self-sustaining population that's able gotcha. to resist, um, uh, blister rust. One of the really important steps though that I talked about was I said, we think that these trees are resistant. Right. Um, and there's a way that yeah, we can yeah. know. <laughs> And so oh, that's okay. another, another little piece of the puzzle that is, is super fascinating. And that's, uh, um, that we send for, for these trees that we believe are resistant. And there's a couple of hundred in, in Jasper that we believe are resistant. We take the seeds from those trees and we send them to a lab and we grow them into two year old seedlings. And then they, in the, in the lab or in the greenhouse, they're, they're subjected to blister rust infection. So a nice warm climate is created. And then there are spores that drip onto the little seedlings. So they get a nice dose of blister rust. And then they're outplanted in a randomized block design out in their fields at Kalmaka. And there's other really great um, uh, testing centers in the U.S., um, but we have we now have one in Canada. They uh, plant them, the seedlings out after they've been exposed to blister rust out into, uh, out into the fields, and they monitor them over time to see which ones get blister rust and which ones are showing resistance. And so that's when we get the answer back that yes, this one is a winner or what we call an elite elite tree. Um so elite this tree, tree yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> so that's when we get the confirmation of what we are seeing in the field with resistance gets gets tested in the lab. And that that again, it takes many years, right? You got 2 years right. to grow the seedlings, you expose and then you've got to see how it performs. That's super uh, cool. Yeah, it's very, is. very it cool. Is. It's great. Like it's, it's great. I, I love that. Like it, that, I honestly, I feel, I do feel hope that way, right? Whereas, like, 
I think um, if you were just out there planting seedlings and like kind of crossing your fingers, it would have seemed. But like this is, yeah, this is awesome. Like I, I love that. It's, it's a very you have cool confirmation way about yeah, your, what you're, the work you're doing. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to mention as well that Brenda and her team as well have the ability, and maybe Brenda, you can explain a bit more to protect these elite rust-resistant trees uh, from mountain pine beetle. And I believe Brenda, you guys do this almost every year, correct? We do. And we did, luckily, we also did it during the mountain pine beetle outbreak here. Mm. So we apply, um, have you heard about verbenone? I haven't, no. No. So it's it, it's been used by forestry to protect trees so that it's this patch of of chemical. It's it, it, it comes to you in a little plastic packet um, oh. that's whatever, it's probably five centimeters by 10 centimeter packet and okay. you attach it to the stem of a tree and it sends a chemical message out to mountain pine beetle that says oh. this tree is already full of mountain pine beetle go somewhere else oh it's like and, a pheromone or whatever it's a it's a pheromone and um gotcha. there's another one that we use called green leaf volatiles and it tells the mountain pine beetle chemically this is a a um deciduous tree go somewhere else so Interesting. we apply these two packets um every spring it has to be applied yearly to our really highly valuable trees and you can you can understand that you know after i described how much effort goes in oh to God, trying yeah. to identify these trees that it's mm-hmm. really worth your while to try and maintain them on the landscape not only because every year nutcrackers are visiting your highly valuable tree but then we're going back in and we're collecting also collecting the seed from it so um, cool. we were able to to um, save many white brook pine that would have died and we we actually uh, did a study on the effectiveness of applying these and what we found was that it saved 60 percent of the trees that we protected that otherwise would have died and so we published that in a journal uh, last year um, so that cool. others could learn from from our our experience because um you know it's it's you know, when something like this happens, when you lose so many yeah. trees to mountain pine beetle, it's it's really helpful to to share um, some oh, stories yeah. about what worked. Totally, yeah, you got to mm-hmm. share that stuff with the community for yeah. sure. And so it can work on single trees only. So what you know, we explored the use of them to protect stands, and that doesn't seem, at least from from our research, that it's there yet. But we could protect individual trees, um, and so that's what we're able to do. Yeah. That's very cool. That's I love this. I love this type of stuff. It's just fun to to see what people can accomplish and to put their minds to something, right? Like, yeah. so, a bit more hope I, here, um, I thought as well with this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Exactly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have, oh, there was one thought that came up that's maybe less hopeful. I just wanted to ask the question. So we're talking about trying to find these j- trees that are genetically happen they have the traits to help them survive a blister rust attack. Is there concern about limiting, you know, the genetics too much to make them more vulnerable to something else that's maybe down the line unforeseen? I'm sure this is a conversation you've had. <laughs> I'm just, I'm curious about, yeah, where that conversation's gone. Yeah, you know, so I, from my understanding, it's there. There's actually quite a bit of genetic diversity in white bark pine, um, and so you know, concerns about say selecting too much that would would mean that they would be more um, susceptible to other diseases that has not come up to my knowledge. Okay. 
No, that makes sense. The, the only reason that came to mind actually is I recently was talking about the the banana. Have you mm. you know about the story about the banana? Yes. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Was, right, and I'll, I'll break it down. I guess quick. I shouldn't mention it if I'm not going to explain it to listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But essentially, I guess this is the way I came across it, and I'm sure I'm not telling it 100% true, was uh, when you're at the dentist and you get that banana-flavored fluoride or whatever, right? And you're like, this tastes nothing like a banana. I don't know what the hell these dentists think, but this is not a banana. Um, it turns out that every banana that you buy in the grocery store is genetically identical. They're all the same tree, essentially. They're all basically clones of one another. Um, and that, I don't know how long ago, but whatever, let's say decades ago uh there was a different banana species that was actually the common banana that we were all eating and some kind of pathogen came in and killed them all and so they had to start from scratch and now this is the new banana so what dentists have is actually banana flavored it's just not the banana you know about because that banana doesn't exist anymore (laughs) but anyways my point was i wanted to bring up that question of the genetic variability and you know having genetic diversity to try and combat some new unforeseen because you know as humans we seem to accidentally screw things up (laughs) and as as is evident with the the blister rust problem right and so i was just curious how much forethought was going into that and if it was a concern because obviously there's still lots of natural white bark pine out there and there'll be crossbreeding and everything else so it was just uh i'm sure it's probably not an issue based off the sheer number and variety that are out there already but maybe just a question that came the, to mind maybe down the road in the future but i think now yeah. they still have a, a good enough pool Yes, of yes. these rust-resistant trees. Yeah, white bark pine are not bananas. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, how many how many trees, how many uh, seedlings are you able to plant in a year? I'm curious how much I want. To, uh, I, I want to paint a picture of the vastness of this. How much is being planted? Um, what's the mortality like? You know, how much? How many of these trees are surviving on an annual basis? That kind of thing. Yeah, there are people who work in BC and Alberta and the national parks um, and other organizations who are out planting seedlings. Um, so the amount that Jasper is doing, well, well, it's really important for the land base and for the, the stands that we're responsible for. This work is happening in other areas too. Um, you know what I'm I, like, I'm, I'm quite proud to say that we've been really successful with planting. Um, nice. You know, it's taken a lot of hard work. Planting but... at the top of a mountain is never easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so first, like I said, we had to, before we could start planting the seedlings, we had to identify the trees um, that we think are resistant. So um, currently we have about 140 trees scattered throughout the park and stands that we believe are resistant. Um, we have one tree that appears to, with, through lab testing, is has been confirmed. And so that's just a matter of time. We're just waiting for that testing to, to happen. So the, that tree is, um, for, for folks who come to Jasper, um, it's in an area called the Geraldine, um, mm. which is, there's a hiking trail that goes up Geraldine. Um, so it, that's the rough area where, where that tree is located. And there's some beautiful white bark pine there. Um, is there a plaque for that tree? There should be a plaque. No. This tree is <laughs> no. a super tree. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's fabulous. It's, DBH is, I don't know, probably about 60 centimeters um, and, I don't know, 20, 20 meters tall. Yeah, beautiful nice tree. tree. Um, yeah. yeah, we've identified the trees. Now, we've also collected a lot of seed. Um, last year was a mast year. So, in our stock, we have over 200,000 seeds 
And most of that was from this past summer. We are already growing out seedlings from the trees, the seeds we collected this summer. And then in terms of seedlings planted, um, we're at about just over 20,000 um, seedlings awesome. planted in Jasper. So, you know, it's, it's a small amount when you're thinking about the long, long term, but it's an important amount. <laughs> so, you know, every year we are trying to ramp up our, our planting. Um, and, you know, we've planted as much as 8,000 seedlings in a year. And my hope is that we can be planting about 10,000 a year. Um, That's awesome. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool though. So, that, so you're planning, hoping to plant 10,000 seedlings a year and you've got 220,000 seeds ready to rock, get yes. ready to go to yeah. the, yeah, to go to the nursery and, and get mm-hmm. started. Um, so, what is the I'm curious what's the what's the atmosphere amongst your team about this this program and and where it's headed and and what do they think are they like oh man I don't know are they are they are you do you do you feel like there's there's enthusiasm and excitement about what's going on You know there's a quote in the film I think right at the beginning and I I should know it generally the quote is along the lines of, you know, one of the, the most important things and, and hopeful things you can do is plant a tree under whose shade you won't sit because they take so long to grow. And, you know, there's a, everybody in, in my team and, and we get lots of help from, we get help from tree planters who we hire to help us and other parks folks who come and give us a hand. And it's everybody's favorite day of the year um, yeah. <laughs> to plant. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, yeah. hard work. Like tree planters yeah. are tough and uh, yeah, it's physically sure. really demanding and um, they're highly skilled and they've taught us a lot about how to properly plant a seedling and whitebark pine are different than planting a lot of, there's extra care that needs to go in because they, these seedlings, because they grow in such harsh environments, what other researchers have found is the seedlings have better survival if you plant them in uh, what's called a microsite. Mm. Um, so next to an object like a log or um, a rock that provides it extra uh, protection from wind and and really harsh sun so and it tends to do well after fires <laughs> right uh so we go in after a fire has come through and especially if there's some great like woody debris um so when you're planting them you try and identify those microsites so you're you're it's not just a matter of like planting at regular mm-hmm. intervals you're plant yeah. you're moving around you're planting in microsites as you travel around and they they can't be bunched too close together they need room um yeah. Uh, to grow. It's not um, cut block silviculture. This is, this is, you're finding the highest likelihood spacing and the highest, li- everything's, yeah, optimized. Yeah. Yeah. For optimized yeah, exactly. for the survival of the tree, not for the cost effectiveness or whatever else. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So everybody's favorite day is, is planting day. Yeah. That's all. Mm-hmm. I can, I can see that from the video because it's just everyone's, everyone seems pumped, right? They're really excited and it's, there's obviously a lot of hope and a lot of excitement. So, mm-hmm. so Emily, do you want to tell me about the video and, and how this came about and, and, and what was the, what was the hope for that video going out there? Sure. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it for sure. Um, so this video came to be as a project between all of the mountain parks. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a little group of communicators and uh, we share knowledge, we share products, we share messages. 
Because, uh, you know, we work in uh, mountain parks, we try to have consistency in the way we talk about things and we kind of pull our res- resources together so we're a bit more effective. So this project came to be is talking as to how to best raise awareness on um, the converse- conservation program and, of course, white bark pine as well. Um, but it was it was a story about the recovery of white bark pine. This is a story of of what's being done to recover white bark pine and how we go about it. And and as you can tell from the video and Brenda, it's it's a very cool story. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's 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 quite interesting to go up in these trees, collect the seeds, have them dry over the course of a number of months, and then and then send them into nurseries for two years. Go back into these areas, yeah. plant them again, and all this this amazing care that is taking into uh, making sure these little seedlings survive. Yes. And you know, like I think Brenda, you said the aim is ten thousand trees a year, and I'm not sure if that sounds a lot or not. Or to me, it's it's amazing. It's a great number. And I think from this, Brenda, there's fifty sixty percent survival rate. We hope roughly, for. yeah. You know, be the the. Uh, Planting of microsites certainly helps and, um, better quality planting over time as we've learned more from tree planters. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so we just thought like as a group that the best way to kind of really tell the story is through a, a video. So we just pulled our resources together to be, to be able to give out a product that is to me, it turned out to be really great and really tells the story and it tells the story of, you know, there's a little bit of doom and gloom, like we said at the beginning, but it's a very hopeful story. And the fact that a lot of us don't really, won't really be here to see it, but are still so passionate about it because, you know, just planting these trees that have this rust resistance seems to be like the most hopeful thing we can do at this point. Because like you said, uh, blisters rust is here and it's here to stay. And so how can we kind of work around it? And you're right, like we do tend to try to fix things that we've broken. And sometimes by trying to fix them, we break them even more. <laughs> but I think in this case, Gotta try. Um, these, Gotta try. right. And these passionate um, um, scientists are, are really trying to do their due diligence and, and doing everything possible with the best knowledge they have at the time. And I think that, you know, um, there's not much, how can I say this? I don't think there's, um, I think there's way more benefit and hope in planting these trees that are hopefully rust resistant than, than not doing anything for the recovery of the species. So I think this story is a very, um, it's a story of hope. It's a story of the future. It's a story of what, what these scientists are doing behind the scenes that sometimes people don't really know about. And so we've been trying to just highlight this great conservation work and, and, and the ways we go about it. And I think it's a very, very cool story. <laughs> and and uh, I'm very happy that, um, you, uh, you took, uh, you reached out and, and got us to talk about it because I, I, I'm very happy to hopefully have other people watch it as well and, and, and know more about White Buck Pines. Yeah. No, I was, I'm happy that you guys agreed to come on because it's been, it's just been, it's been a, a, a exploratory journey for me too. I learned a lot more today than I, than I knew before this, right? So, but yeah, it's, I think it's a great story. Like you look at the, you know, good story writing or good, good you know, a great movie. This has got all the all the makes of a great movie, right? Like it has to go from like really really cool to everything is terrible. There's no way we're possibly getting out of this to some kind of last minute. 
wait a second, we can do this. And it's just, it's, of course, it's an incredible story. And I think we're, we're now we're just waiting to see how, yeah, how things play out. And it's just, it's really, really cool to see the, you know, the passion, the enthusiasm, the excitement and, and the, you know, like the follow through, the fact that this is, like you said, 50%. I know to some people, 50% mortality might sound terrible, right? Um, but we're talking about super harsh environments. Mm. Um, we're talking about what, maybe a month and a half, two month growing season, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like, it's, it's a very, short, yeah. most of the year, like, you know, at least for sure, eight, nine months out of the year, those trees are dormant. And so we're talking about a very small opportunity window for these trees to succeed. And the fact that you're getting 50 to 60% success rate that they continue to grow and they're not dying over the winter is, it's actually incredible. It's very, very yeah. good, right? Um, it's great. So it's good to have that context as well. And yeah, it's just, it's just really, I'm, I'm excited about this and I'm looking forward to, to following this program and seeing where it goes. And yeah, yeah. And I think what's encouraging to me about the film too is that the story that's shared in the film is really being repeated across Alberta and BC. And, you know, a yes. huge shout out to folks who work. Um, in both provinces and they've been doing, you know, well, we've planted 10,000, they've planted many more. Mm. Um, and so it's the work in BC on provincial land, um, done by various people and it, by industry, um, and consultants who are, you know, working hard, um, to, to, um, to plant. Uh, resistant seedlings. So, you know, the, the, the story in the, in the film is being, is being, um, carried out by, by folks for, you know, with lots of different partners, people, people working hard, uh, to try and, and recover the species. So, you know, and each year that I work on it, cause I've been, I've been doing it for a couple of decades, I yeah. see more and more <laughs> people getting excited about, about trying to help and, and, and do work on the species. So, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's just going to keep growing. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say that I think what is really cool about this story as well in the way that it was pictured in the film is the fact that it's like seven mountain parks working together to, for the recovery of this one species and all these scientists and these people like really, really, really wanting to work. Mm -hmm. um, I find that it transpired in the film and I find that you can feel that from people and I find that very cool. And this is just like Brenda said, a small picture of the greater things that are doing for white bark pine. And um, just to yeah, praise Brenda and her calling and her teams, we got some numbers yesterday on, on total trees planted in the seven mountain parks. And I'm very excited to say that so far we've had 97,000 trees planted in the mountain park. So that's awesome. I find, yeah, that's really very, very uh, work to be proud of. Oh, absolutely. It's really, really mm -hmm. exciting to hear. Yeah. No, it, you know, the amount of effort and time and people that have gone into this, it's obviously a huge project and it's obviously taken a long time and it's so unique. Mm -hmm. And it's not often you hear these, uh, hopeful species at risk stories, right? So often it's just like, yeah, these, this species is in trouble and we don't really know what to do. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just like, okay. So this is, this is always very hopeful when you see stuff like this. Yeah, it's very cool. No, absolutely. And I see that the the video has like 30,000 hits now on YouTube and it's it's obviously getting out there, right? Um awesome. I won't yeah. I won't offer that much extra. <laughs> I wish I had 30,000 listeners, but I don't think I do. Uh but I'll yep, I'll do what maybe. I can. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. That's right. like hopeful thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not so doom and gloom. Pretty sure you uh, got to. If people stuff like this, I find people often get heartened, right? And they want to contribute. They want to get involved. They want to help in some way or another. Uh, is there some way? What's your recommendation to folks that are listening that want to be a part of the solution? Well, I have two uh, two great ideas. Um, okay. Uh, the first is to experience go out experience some white bark and limber get connected to it you know mm-hmm. there's some there's there's great places to visit across all of the the mountain national parks and in provincial parks in jasper there's uh there's some beautiful white bark pine on the uh, uh trails into the tonquin valley um and many other great trails um so that that's the first thing fall in love mm-hmm. with these trees um yes. and the second is is the white bark pine ecosystem foundation of canada um, they're a nonprofit. Um, they do work on the ground. They are out there. They are planting. They are, they are supporting recovery. Um, they're very hands on small organization that does, is doing great work. Is there one in the States as well? I know I have lots of American mm-hmm. listeners as well. Yeah. What's yeah, their... yeah. That's the parent organization is in the okay. U.S. And then there's, there's, uh, now a foundation in Canada, um, Perfect. which is really great. Uh, lots of amazing people, very passionate yeah. and, and committed to it. Awesome. recovery. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, thanks to both of you for, for taking the time to do this. Uh, it was, it, it's such a great story, like I said, and I was, I was more than happy to have you on and to, and to have this conversation and to share the story. And I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope this conversation gets out to more people and hopefully helps your, helps your cause a little bit more. So this was, this was great. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I learned a bunch. Mutualism is super cool. Who knew? I had no idea this stuff was going on. That's just awesome. Mutualism. Crazy. I'm going to be spending some time Googling cool mutualisms later on, I think. Going to have to. So, <laughs> Thanks again, Brenda, Emily. This is awesome. Appreciate all the good work and good luck to you. You're going to crush it out there. I know you will. As well as the rest of the seven national parks, I guess. I should mention that too. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck to all of you and even those in the States and everybody. Fix that white bark pine issue. Let's do it. Thanks a lot for listening. Catch you next time. Take it easy.